of the purpose that the writer had. And that purpose is found multiple times throughout the book. As Mingu talked about last week, he even states multiple times, I have written these things that, I have written these things so that, over and over throughout the book. But perhaps the most compelling or the most important one is found in chapter 5 and verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And so John wrote this to Christians so that they might know that they have eternal life. And so last week we talked about chapter 1 and we looked at very uh, famous passages such as verse 7 where it's talking about walking in the light as He is in the light, talking about fellowship with one another, talking about confessing our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so real quick, maybe a short comment if there's any from last week. We kind of ran out of time. What's the big takeaway from last week that propels us or prepares us for this week's study? Kyle, you got anything? I think one big takeaway for me, particularly if you look at verses 6 and 7, is the, the use of the word if. And, and if you've paid attention to my preaching, I, I, may, I, I note the word if a lot because the word if is a conditional word. And if you look at verse 6 and 7, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice to the truth. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, cleanses his, Jesus, his son, cleanses us. The, the, the if here, uh, to me, signifies or implies, might be a better term, implies that there's a condition to salvation. And it's that you remain in the light, that you walk in the light, or that you maintain your fellowship with the Lord. And, and I think that's significant going into chapter 2 because the, the emphasis throughout chapter 2 is going to be on how do you know you know the Lord? There, there is this emphasis on uh, having assurance, which kind of plays into the purpose you looked at in verse, chapter 5, verse 13. And so I, I think we need to acknowledge and, and uh, ready ourselves with this realization that, there are, that John, he's going to talk about being confident in your salvation, but that confidence comes with a recognition that there are conditions for it as well. So when we get ready to go to the text, we have to understand, uh, first of all tonight, that chapter 1 had 10 verses, chapter 2 has almost three times that, so we're going to try our best to get through chapter 2 tonight, but we might not uh, complete the entire chapter. With that, let's go ahead and get started with chapter 2 and verse 1. John says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. <coughs> and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Let's stop right there and have some comments on what John is trying to say in these first couple of verses. Jay, you got anything on these couple of verses here? Verses 5 through 10 in chapter 1 really show just how serious the separation that God draws between him and sin, light and darkness, and how we, what, 
They're waving at you. But I think I can hear you. <laughs> I would just go for it. Anytime Dave is, it, is, is it, jumping well, up in the back waving, it's time to get serious. I think it's, is it on? It seems on. Oh, it's on. I know. I'm scared. Severity How, of sin. Go for it. Severity of sin. How's for the that? record, that wasn't me this time. Yeah. All right. The record's now 47 to 1. Yeah. All right. I, always, <laughs> I always just slip him a 20 before yeah, the service. Yeah, that's right. Like, to hey, make take sure. care of my mic. Make sure. So the severity of sin, you, look, you read chapter 1, verses 5 to 10 specifically, and you see just how serious the, draw, the line God draws between sin and, and relationship with Him, light and, and darkness. And He goes right from that, just how serious sin is, and what that, when we walk in the darkness, what, what that means for us. And then He starts chapter 1 with this comment. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. We've got some big big words here in chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 that I think we're all kind of maybe chomping at the bit to talk about. And so just quickly my thought on the word advocate, I love the imagery that's being pulled in with that word. It's really a legal word, it's really a legal term being used almost like a defense attorney that is trying to, to call innocence out for the one that they are advocating for. So if you have a footnote they might even say uh, the Greek word there, one called alongside to help. It's used to designate a friend of the accused who voluntarily steps in and personally urge, urges the judge to decide in his favor. And so we all have an idea of what a courtroom looks like, whether we've been in one or seen one online or see one on TV or whatever it may be. We know we get, we get this idea of someone who's being accused of a crime and a defense attorney being, you know, uh, being given to him, given to her, and them standing up and, and defending them to the judge. The beautiful part about this is we can see this in our minds as we stand accused. And there's no way around the fact that guilty is the sentence. There's no other last-minute evidence that's going to be coming in. You know what, Jay actually has never sinned. No, the record shows that Jay has sinned. There's no getting around that. And our, and our advocate not, isn't necessarily saying, yes, Jay's completely innocent. Our advocate is stepping in and saying, I'll take his punishment. And that's the beauty of that. And when we, when we watch TV, we see a movie, a good lawyer movie, I love a, a good movie like that. The defense attorney is always trying to prove innocence. But in our part, Christ takes that to the next step and says, no, Jay, he's guilty of sin, but I, I'm taking the punishment. He'll find innocence through me. Not by his own actions, but through me. So we have this beautiful image of a divine courtroom with God, the judge, who's happy to see his son in that, that advocate position to help call innocent upon ourselves. Um, yeah, uh, is, um, I failed to explain the you know, Greek grammar last week, so I'm a little bit nervous to do this again. <laughs> you know. Here is a very important Greek grammar. I, I mean, I'm not, you know, I, if I can avoid this, you know, I, I want to avoid this, but I can't avoid this because it's, it is so important. Here uh, in verse 1, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Here does, does sin, if anyone does sin, it's in a, a little bit different uh, tense, which is called aorist. And what is aorist? Aorist is something very difficult to understand in English 
grammar. But in Greek, Aries uh, tense or aspect we call both tense or aspect works very important role. So here's the thing. Uh, Aorist is something that requires us to see uh, an event from a different aspect, a different angle. Like there is a marching band marching on the street. The tense means I stand on the ground. I am watching the marching band is passing. So he, it is coming and it is going and it went. So that's the tense. But Aorist is different. I am watching the marching band from the airplane or helicopter or a, uh, on the top of, the, of a building. So I can watch the marching band as a whole. It's moving, it's coming there, and it's going there, it is still being there. So it gives us the idea that we have the whole picture. In other words, it is not just a point, but we see the whole picture of something. So if the text says, if anyone does sin, means, I mean, it doesn't mean that if anyone right now uh, commits a sin. It doesn't mean that. That is a present tense, current uh, occurring thing. But this means if anyone does sin, means if, if anyone has been sinning, if anyone has been practicing sinning, uh, practicing sin. So it is his whole life so far. His life so far is simple. So it is not just an event, but it is, it is the state of the person. He's a sinner. So if anyone does sin means if he is a sinner. In other words, if he has not taken advantage of the advocate, it means that. So that's what uh, this text means. So then he has an advocate. He has an advocate who would pay him the propitiation. So this is very important thing. So I had to explain the, you know, Aries tense. So it is not. It doesn't mean an individual, independent action, but it it, it means it denotes the person's spiritual status. If he's a sinner, then he needs the advocate. He has to take advantage of the propitiation of Jesus Christ. You know, the thing that stands out to me in these two verses is that it starts off with the phrase, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Implicit in that for me is the belief of John 
that we can, as children, as and he's writing to Christians. He's not writing to uh, he's not writing to people who who haven't become members of the church yet. He's writing to people who are who are baptized into Christ. You can see that throughout the entire letter. He's writing to Christians and he's saying, "Hey, I'm, I'm writing this to help you not sin." The implication being, it's possible to go a prolonged period of time without sinning. I find comfort in that. I find hope in that. And, and I find a challenge in that. Because too often we, we are susceptible to the, hey, I'm going to sin every day mentality. I'm just going to, I'm defeated. I'm just going to accept the fact that I'm always going to sin. And, and I think that mentality is wrong. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says that not all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That, that verse simply means that it's inevitable that at some point in your life, between birth and death, you are going to sin. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen every day or every week or every month. And so to me, when I read this, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I'm challenged. I'm challenged to try to live every day without sinning. And I have hope that that's possible because I have an advocate. The truth is, you know, he says these things I write to you, meaning these things I've just said in the last chapter, he didn't have chapters back then, these things I just wrote, I have written so that you may not sin. You know, we sometimes look at verse 7, we have the blood of Christ cleansing us. Sometimes people say continually cleansing. Last week we talked about the windshield wipers wiping off the sin. We talk about we have this ability to confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we think and we start to believe, well, I can just, I can sin because God's going to cleanse me. Because Jesus' blood is going to cleanse me. It's that idea of what Paul would say, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. John, to me, is saying the same thing. Shall we continue in sin because the blood of Jesus cleanses us? Certainly not. I have written these things so that you may not sin. It's, it's a call for us to understand, yes, we do have the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us. Yes, we do have the ability to confess our sins and to get forgiveness of those sins. But don't take that as a free ticket to sin as much as you want to make the blood of Jesus more powerful. I have written these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin. But when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. You know, I love explaining a church word like propitiation with another church word, atonement. But that's just how it was always taught growing up. What does propitiation mean? As a fourth grader, the teacher looks at you and goes, atoning sacrifice. Thank you. I now understand what propitiation means. Not. You know, atoning sacrifice is what propitiation means. Jesus atoned our sins. He paid the debt for our sins. That's the idea happening right here. Now, we're going to turn the wheels on and continue in the text. Verse 3. Now, by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought also himself to walk just as he walked. 
Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now there's a lot to be said about that, those, those many verses, and we're going to take some time here. I'm going to go ahead and start it off by talking about what he talks about in verses 3 and 4 about knowing God. This is one of the things uh, Kyle says all the time. If you've heard me preach long, you've heard me talk about this. I've preached many times at this point. I talk about this a lot, what I'm about to talk about. But there is a difference in knowing God and knowing about God. And that's exactly what I think John is trying to say here. By this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. You know, there's a difference in knowing the commandments, right? That's knowing about God. I know what God expects from me. I know what God desires from me. Those are the expectations He has led for me, and therefore I know about that. But the next step is not only knowing about the commandments, knowing about the expectations. It's about following those expectations. Following those commandments. And that's the difference. He says, he who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, this person is a liar. And the truth is not in him. The truth is, when we act like we know God, we know Jesus, we are part of the church of Christ, we are part of the body of the Lord that he bled and died for. But we're not keeping the commandments. We don't know anything. We don't know God. We don't know Jesus. And we certainly don't know the church that he died for. So that's a challenge for us to ask when it comes to me personally. Do I know about God or do I know Him? And the truth is, the truth of the matter is, you can fool everyone else, but God knows whether you know Him. Perhaps that's why He would say to those who are to be cast out into the outer darkness, I never knew you. Um, the ESV translation has a little bit different from the New King James, King James Version. Verse 3, ESV says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him. So uh, it denotes that uh, there was a point that I came to know Him. So I think uh, that is important for us to understand that John has an idea that we have passed a line. We should have passed a line from darkness to light. So we have come to know him. So we didn't know him. I, I mean, I didn't know him, but I got to know him at a point uh, of time in my life. So, and the time, the point of time is when I 
took advantage of the propitiation, I mean atonement. So then I got to know him, and now I know him. So I think that that is uh, that is uh, outstanding for me. Yeah, think about this passage. Uh, it's the ultimate biblical example of it's not enough to just talk the talk. You have to walk the walk. And we see John pretty much write that out when he says, but, but the one who says I've come to know his commandments and does not, I have come to know him and does, not, and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You see multiple times it, it's not, John writes, it's not enough just to say, to profess, to act like you know him. That's talking the talk. You can look the part, you can act the part, but it comes down to walking the walk, which he says, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, what a calling is that? If we're going to truly know Christ, or if we're going to obey his commandments, if we're going to have a mark of a true Christian here, and then we're asked to walk like Jesus walked, what a high standard that is. And I think about Matthew 16, verse 24, and Jesus himself says, if anyone wishes to come after me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. And so I love verse 6 because of that, because it echoes the very words of Jesus in the sense that if if I'm going to know him, if I'm going to do more than just talk the talk, the walk that I have to walk, well, it's his. It's a a path of self-denial. It's a path of humility, of service. That's walking in the light. That's walking his walk. On the other hand, verses 7 through through 8, I love the confusion of the... I'm not writing a new commandment, it's an old commandment, but I am going to write a new commandment. I do love that aspect of, he says, I'm not, I, John, I'm not writing you a new commandment you've never heard, it, but it is a new commandment compared to that of the Old Testament. And so I love him pulling that back in, and, that he, and, and this is him, and he's ramping up for the rest of the book of his conversation on, on love. This is one of his, his first real big mentions of it in verse 9. The one who says he's a light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. So right now we've had three uh, statements that would qualify someone who thinks they're walking the light, but actually they're not. One, if they confess they haven't sinned. Two, if um, not keeping his commandments. And now three, if they're hating their brother. So just now in the first uh, 19 verses of the book of 1 John, we've got three ways to see, okay, am I walking in the light? Am I keeping his commandments? Am I confessing my sin? Am I loving my brother? Yeah, for me, the, the, these first few verses of chapter 2 are like John's commentary on the greatest command. You have, uh, you have him say in verse 3, here's how we know if we know God, if we keep his commandments. Now he's going to elaborate on those commandments. The first one is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he equates that to, uh, um, to, to obeying him, to keeping his word. Because Jesus, as I mentioned this morning, says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then now here, as, as Jay's alluding to, he, he gets to verse uh, 9 and 10 and 11, and he's talking about loving your neighbor, loving your brother, that, that your love of other people has a direct impact on whether or not you actually love God. And so all this to me is, is John saying, okay, you've heard the greatest command. I want to elaborate on that. I want to preach on that for a little bit. And so it's, it's kind of a commentary on, on something that is not necessarily new. It's something we already were acquainted with, but it's him giving his own uh, ed- education on it, if you will. Yeah, I think it's, it's important to, 
to talk about a little bit what Jay was talking about with the hating the brother. What can a grudge against a brother or sister do to your soul? You know, the text tells us here blatantly, he who, is, who says he's in the light but hates his brother is still in the dark. Is in the darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Have you ever had a grudge or feelings about a certain person that made you so blinded to what they're good at doing? To what, they, what good they provide in the world? What good they provide to other people? But because you have a grudge against them, because you have a problem with them, you don't see any of the good. All you see is the bad. All you hear is the bad. And you linger in that because you've been blinded by that darkness. You know, James would say, if someone cannot tame their tongue, their whole religion is useless. I believe it's fair to say, if someone hates their brother, the rest of their religion is useless. If you live your life acting as if you are this great light, you are this light set on a hill like Jesus said we ought to be, we are the light of the world, I am the salt of the earth, and you try to be this great example, and you do all these wonderful things, you go to all the different events you can go to, you do all the things you can possibly do, but at the end of the day, you hate your brother, or you hate your sister, or you're holding this grudge for 20 years about what someone said to you at the church potluck about your sweet potato casserole. What was it for? If you hate your brother, you're in the dark. You have no light in you. And if you, have, if you are in the dark, if you are blinded by the dark, you are not in God. Because if you are in God, God is light in Him. There is no darkness at all, we talked about last week. So how important is it for us to understand how we ought to treat one another? If you live your life so proud of the light that you are, while looking down your nose at those beside you because of what you perceive they are doing wrong or what you perceive they haven't reached, then all that you've done is useless. Because it wasn't about showing the light of Christ, it was about showing the light of yourself. And there's a difference there. So the text continues in verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the father. I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. 
Guys, what are some thoughts you have about this text right here? Perhaps maybe I have a question to ask. What's the emphasis John is putting on writing to children, writing to fathers, writing to young men? What perhaps do you think John is trying to do as, you know, this elder, as we're going to learn in his other epistles, uh, I believe it's either 2nd or 3rd John, he's an elder of the church. What's he trying to do here as he's writing to these different groups? I think one thing we could see him doing is almost talking to three different generations of faith and not grandfather, father, and child, but those who have been Christians for a long time, those who have been Christians for uh, you know, you know, a little bit less, and then those who are you know, more children in the faith. So whether he's talking about generations or whether he's talking about maturity level of faith, we see him appealing to the three different things. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. Part of the letter of 1 John is going to a generation or to a group who have been there since the start, who have been there, who have had a faith for a really long time, and they need to hear this. In the next group, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one, because you are strong. What young man, what young person doesn't need to hear that? Who doesn't need that encouragement? Who doesn't need to, to hear, doesn't need that admir, admina, admin, admonition? That to, to fight, to continue to fight against the evil one. The older generation, those who have been around the faith, still fighting against the evil one, no doubt, have passed that more difficult time where they're fighting against the world. That, but that young man, that young, that young person of faith who's still growing and maturing in that level of faith, they're fighting Satan maybe more than any other generation at that point. And then to the children, I have written to you children because you know the Father. Whether you're children or young in the faith, I'm writing to you because you're starting to know who God is. And so at every level of life, every stage of life, every age of life, whatever it may be, there's going to be content in this book. There's going to be material in this letter that you're going to be needing to listen to. I'm writing these things, and I have written these things for you. And I think uh, as he, when he gets down here to verse 15 through 17, might be some of the most powerful statements in the whole book of 1 John and some of the most relatable because as he's been talking about love, he, he starts with about your love for God, then he goes into your love for your fellow man. Now he's talking about misplaced love. The, the, uh, the love we have for this world as opposed to the love for God. And he makes it very clear that you can't love both. That, that, that what you set your affection on has a singular focus. And what I mean by that is when, when you choose something to love, everything else is going to be demoted somehow. You might claim you love multiple things, but there's going to be a pecking order to it. I mean, I, I claim I love Chick-fil-A. And what that ends up doing is every other restaurant gets demoted below Chick-fil-A, as it should be. And if you're not doing that, we need to have a conversation. Now, if you love a particular sports team, every other sports team gets demoted below, below that. So your, 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 your love uh, has a um, ranking system to it. The priorities of your life get determined by your love factor. And what John is trying to communicate here is 
the very thing that Jesus tried to communicate when he talked about money. You can't love God and money. You can't love the world and God. It doesn't work that way because if you're going to truly love God the way you're supposed to, he takes all the space. He takes your mind. He takes your heart. He takes your soul. He takes your strength. He takes the entire person. And you can't, you can't have multiple, multiple loves in that regard. And so it's also important to notice in verse 17, the world's passing away. So if you love the world, that love's only going to be temporary anyway. Because at some point the world's not going to be around to love anymore. God is the only being that has an eternalness about him. So that love never ends. So place your love in the right location. Place it in the location of permanency, not of the temporal. So as he's giving this, these admonitions to these generations, it's very significant that he makes the transition to where are you placing your affection because it matters greatly. I see a contrast between uh, this, you know, verses 12 through 14 and, and, and uh, you know, verses following, uh, that is uh, 15 through uh, 27. This kind of, uh, uh, you know, admonishing that you are strong, you overcame the evil, and you are good, you, you know God, and things like that. And then he says, do not love the world. So, you know, uh, be careful about the anti antichrist, things like that. So, uh, I think even if we think we are children of God, even if we are children of God, but still John wants to give us the warning that we have to be careful about these things. I think one, one quick thing to add in verse 17, or are we about to move on? Go ahead. Okay, verse 17, the world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. One thing I pick from that, especially from 15 through 17, is it's a reminder to me that my soul is going to live for eternity. And whether, you know, my soul is going to live for eternity, and it's longing. My soul longs to love things that are going to be living for eternity. And I can fill up on the things that are going to be passing away. I can, I can fill my soul up. I can love the things that are temporary and not permanent. That's not what my soul is longing for. And so I think we see in verses 15 through 16 the same sin that Eve was dealing with in verse 16. You can say the same thing that we're dealing with today. And then verse 17, the world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And so I think that's a good reminder for me at times that if I'm doing the will of God, I'm going to be living forever with God. And I need to go ahead and start loving the things that are eternal, just like my soul is. text continues in verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be, mani be made manifest that none of them were of us but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. I have written to you because you do not, because you do not know the truth. Excuse me. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist, 
who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. So, guys, that's where we're going to end our text tonight. We're going to pick up next week with verse 28, but let's have some thoughts about this last chunk of text in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, Underneath the subtext, uh, in between the lines of the book of 1 John, something we have not had a chance to talk about yet, is what John and the church was facing at the time uh, of this writing. And that is this idea of Gnosticism. Uh, Gnostics uh, were rampant throughout the church, those people who would believe that Jesus was not God, that he was not deity because he took on flesh. And there's different realms of Gnosticism. There's certain people who believed one part about Jesus, certain people who believed another part about Jesus, and we can get really bogged down into what uh, those different definitions are, and we can really talk about that for a long time. But understanding what John is talking about in general when he talks about this Antichrist it's those who follow Gnosticism. It's those who are claiming that Jesus is not God. And that's what he tries to say. Or Jesus is not Christ. In verse 22, Who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And the bottom line, the takeaway we can take, is whoever denies the Son can't have the Father either. That's what we take away from John here in this huge text, 18 through 23. The main takeaway is, if you're going to say that about Jesus, if you're going to say that Jesus is not God, that He is not the Christ, that He is not the Son of God, that He is not deity, that He is not just as equal as God the Father, then you can't have God the Father either, because the two are one. The two are one, and you cannot have one without the other. And so he's probably talking to some of these uh, Christians who had followed Judaism in the past, who were all about the Father because the Father was there in the Exodus, but weren't necessarily all about Jesus when Jesus was the one who saved and gave them their salvation. Jesus was the one they were supposed to be walking in. Jesus was the one that they were supposed to be emulating, and they weren't. So what are y'all's thoughts about 24 through 27? Well, this uh, large section we just read, uh, what, what I think is worth mentioning is everybody gets intrigued when they see the Antichrist language. We get, we get fascinated with that. There are three things you need to know about that really quick. Number one, John is the only New Testament author to write about the Antichrist, and he only writes about it in 1 John and 2 John, not Revelation. And so the only places you're going to find this term is right here in this chapter and in 2 John, verse 7. 
That's it. The other thing you need to know about the Antichrist, Ben alluded to it. By definition, the Antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the Antichrist. It's not some significant figure in history that is opposing Christianity in some unique way. It's anyone, anyone that denies the exi- that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the third thing you need to know is there are many Antichrists, not one Antichrist. In fact, John specifically says that uh, back in verse 18 of this chapter. There are many Antichrists. And, and so don't uh, get misled by this idea that there is some significant opposition, there's this force, there's this person that's going to come along and, and, and uh, create some great drama in the history of Christianity, because that's not what this is, the Antichrist is. The Antichrist is just somebody who denies who Jesus is, and there can be many of them, and they were around in John's day, and they're probably going to be around again, because anybody who denies Jesus is the Son of God is an Antichrist. So the, the Antichrist language is not that complicated. Yeah, I think it is very easy to understand what an Antichrist is. Um, you know, the, the opposite of uh, what Antichrist is to acknowledge Jesus as Christ. So if anyone uh, does not acknowledge Jesus as Christ, then he is Antichrist, or she is. Yeah, I read verses uh, 19 through 27, and to me, it's, it's John saying, remember your first love. He, they're having a problem with false teachers. They're having a problem with this, this Gnosticism going on. It, but verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do, because you do know it. And in the middle of, of all this false teaching, some of them probably within the, the very congregations that this letter is being passed around to that have gone out and preached false teaching, he's trying to tell them, remember your anointing. Remember your first love. Remember your calling. Again in verse 27, But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. It, it's a plea of John to the, his listeners, to his audience, to remember their first, the, the truth that they first clung to, the truth that they first fell in love with, what Christ is and, and who He is and, and what He stands for. And to me, I, I think about it, Revelation 2 and verse 4 with His complaining against the church at Ephesus. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And so to, tonight in my life, when I think about the things that surround us, that crowd us, that distract us from everything, I read this passage and I, and I, and I have to read this to myself. Remember your calling. Remember your first love. Don't be distracted by the false teachers. Don't be distracted by the, all the other things in life that try to pull you away, the pride of life, the, the distractions that are around us. Remember your first love. Do not forget about your anointing. This is where we're going to end tonight in verse 27. We'll pick up again in verse 28 next week. I do want to say this about verses 24 through 27. And that is a reminder of what verse 25 says. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. I believe what John is trying to say and trying to remind them, just like Jay was saying, remember your first love. He's also trying to say, remember what you have through this Christ. Remember what Christ offers. 
All these false teachers, all these antichrists, all these Gnostics, all these different people who are trying to draw you away and lure you away from what you had heard from the beginning. He says multiple times throughout the chapter, what you've heard from the beginning, what you've heard from the beginning. These people who are trying to pull you away from what you've heard from the beginning are also pulling away your chance at eternal life if you follow them. And so for us, I think it's a reminder for us not to lose sight of why we're doing all of this. Why we are going to all of these extents in our life to stay away from temptation, to stay away from uh, the world, to not love the world or the things in the world. It's because the promise of eternal life. And that eternal life is through and only through Jesus Christ, who we have heard from the beginning of our faith. Mingu, will you close us in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this uh, beautiful day. Thank you for this opportunity for us to get together to study your word. Thank you for the ministers who uh, prepared these lessons and uh, shared these lessons uh, with pure heart. Uh, thank you for their work here in Beaufort and in this community. Please help us all to go out and do what you want us to do. Thank you for the leaders of this congregation who are so uh, sold by the Word of God and uh, who want to teach the Word and uh, spread the Word in this community. Please help us all that we can do your will in spreading the Gospel uh, all through this community. Uh, thank you for all the things that we uh, can do and we are doing in the campaign of Going and Doing. Uh, please help us to do better every day and please help us to bear uh, much fruit uh, to please you and to honor you. Thank you for Jesus Christ our Lord uh, who sacrificed himself for our salvation. Uh, we cannot forget the, uh, the sacrifice and we cannot appreciate it well enough. So please help us to uh, understand it and have it in our heart, in everyday lives, in every moment of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.